right. We are getting close to starting our summer series. Uh, the first Sunday that we'll do that is in June. We're going to spend the summer looking at the parables. I'm excited about that. The parables are kind of a unique form of literature and teaching where there's an obviousness to it. But there's also some hidden uh, teachings behind it. So it puts things, some things that we know in kind of different light. Uh, puts things in a different way and kind of can refresh what we already believe. And so I'm excited for that. But this morning, we have our last sermon in our three-week mini-series on John 17 on the High Priestly Prayer. Last week, we saw that the antidote to living as either concerned or cultural Christians is to live as called Christians, to live as called Christians who have been sent into the world as Jesus was sent as well. And what that means is wherever you are, wherever God has you at this time in your life, there is a promise that he is at work through you to display his name and his character. And what our text last week revealed to us is that the motivation and the confidence that we have in living on mission comes from knowing that it's God that keeps us. And when we rest in his grip on us rather than depend on our grip on him, it's only then that we are freed to live on mission wherever we are. But the big looming question that we brought up but we didn't really get to address last week is how? How do you do that? We know that we are sent. We know that God keeps us. We know that we are on a mission wherever we are. But how do we live out that call to reveal and display the name or the character of God to the world that we've been sent into? And this question and its answer brings us to this last section in John 17, verses 20 through 26. It is in this part of Jesus' prayer where we learn and we can start to answer how we are to manifest the name of God and his character to the world. Thankfully, he doesn't leave us hanging. He doesn't leave us to figure it out on our own, but he actually shows us and tells us how we are to do that. And so that is what we're going to be looking at this morning. If you can or are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, meaning the disciples and the people in the room only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So through the disciples' word, that's us. We believe through their word of the New Testament, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where, where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. All right, be seated. Father, I pray that you would, through your spirit, 
make this passage real to our hearts, change us on the spot, transform us by the power of the gospel. You promise to change us according to your word in a unique, special way as we gather together to worship and hear from you this morning. So we ask that you would do what you promised to do, that you would, in your mercy, reveal to us what you are doing and give us faith to believe in areas that we can't see. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So far, we know that everything Jesus has prayed in this prayer up to this point has already been answered. It's already been accomplished. In verses 1 through 5, we saw that he prays for himself to be glorified. He prays for the victory in the hour, victory on the cross. And we know that God answers that prayer because we have Easter, right? We have Easter where we celebrate that victory. We at Redeemer celebrate that every single Sunday, but we have Easter, so we know that prayer has been answered. In verses 6 through 19, he prays in the immediate context for his disciples to be kept by God and sent to manifest the character of God in the gospel. And as we just read, we know that that got answered because he answers that prayer because we have the New Testament, right? Because we are here. We believe because of their word and their faithfulness in communicating the gospel. And so that's what we have come to believe. And this last part of Jesus' prayer, he prays for us, all of us, all believers, to be one. Jesus prays for all believers to be one in the last part of this prayer. And it is through seeing that unity that the world is meant to believe that the Father sent the Son. So back to that original question, how are we to manifest the name of God? How is the world to believe that the Father sent the Son? Well, according to our text, according to Jesus' prayer in this last section, they will know because Christians will be one. Christians will be unified, will be in unity. And if, knowing the church, you have to ask, is it possible for Jesus' prayer to go unanswered? Is it possible for Jesus' prayer to go unanswered? I mean, how many de- denominations are there? Just in Edmond. I looked this up and there are tons of different answers. One said there are 33,000 different denominations. I don't know what that's accurate or not, but we can all agree there are a lot, right? There are a lot of different denominations. So whether you are familiar with the church or not, you've at least heard uh, in the news or headlines a dysfunction of what can happen within churches. That's not sequestered to one denomination or one side. It's across the board. Uh, And chances are if you've been in the church for any extended time, you know that dysfunction in a very personal way. Either you've experienced it or you've been able to observe it firsthand. So the question, is it possible for Jesus' prayer to go unanswered here? Is that possible? Because this this prayer is not like the prayer that he's going to pray in a few hours when he's in the garden and he's asking for there to be another way for it to happen, but he ends that prayer with not my will be done, but yours. This is not like that prayer. Because in this prayer, in verse 24, he explicitly says, I desire, I will. What he's praying is, this is my desire, this is my will, Father, for this to happen. So can Jesus' will go unanswered? 
Can his prayer go unanswered? See, people and commentators often get stuck on this question in this section. And they get preoccupied with this question, but in doing so, they're missing what Jesus is really praying for here. See, the problem with that question is that they misunderstand what he means when he's praying for oneness and unity here. They misunderstand how the unity and the oneness is achieved. Often this prayer is understood and is taught as Jesus praying for the church and for all believers in them to get organized as one. To get organized as one body. Something like all Presbyterians should become Baptists now. Or all non-denominational churches should now become Episcopalian. The thinking is that in order to fulfill Jesus' prayer, we Christians need to have one organization. One organized organization that we're a part of. And while structured unity can be a great thing, and something Christians could get a lot better at, uh, this is not what Jesus is praying for here. This is not the unity and the oneness that he is praying for. <clears throat> this is not what he has in mind. Because we could all come together and get organized into one mighty organization and still lack and still miss what Jesus is really praying for. See, being unified under one organization might be impressive and it might allow, uh, it might be powerful, but it won't get at the heart of what Jesus' prayer is really after. I mean, when, I don't know if you remember this, but when Exxon and Mobil kind of joined forces and became one organization, did that make people say, oh my goodness, look at how they love one another. Look at that organization getting together and unifying in oneness, right? The Father must have sent Jesus the Son when Exxon and Mobil came together. No, of course not. The model and the pattern of unity or oneness that we have been given is what Jesus is praying is seen in the Trinity. The model and the pattern that Jesus is praying for in us is the model given and that's shown in the Trinity. The unity or oneness that Jesus is praying for is connected to the oneness and the unity that is in the Trinity. The love that the Son has for the Father and the love that the Father has for the Son. It is that kind of oneness that Jesus prays for. And it is that oneness that Jesus himself achieves for us. Look at verse 22 in the beginning of verse 23. It says, The glory that you have, been, that you have given me, glory that he prayed for in verses 1 through 5, I have given to them. That they, may, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me. Do you see what he's praying? What this is saying here? Jesus' prayer of unity has already been answered as well. The result of Jesus' full glory that he's praying for at the beginning of our, of our passage is as an accomplished and achieved unity that's already been secured by him. It's already been secured by the work that he has done, and now we experience that reality through the spirit that he's given us. In other words, Christians are already unified. We're already made one. We're already unified. We are one. Not because of something we have done, 
but because of Jesus' work that's been applied to us by the Holy Spirit. All Christians have the same indwelling power and the same Holy Spirit. How many Christians are in this room? How many Christians are in Edmond? A lot. But how many Holy Spirits are there? One. We've been unified by the Holy Spirit applying the reality of Christ's finished work for us. So Jesus' prayer is answered because he achieved our unity on the cross and the Spirit has secured us in that reality. You and I do not achieve unity. You and I do not achieve oneness. We are meant to live in light of a unity that has already been achieved for us. We are meant to live in light of what's already been secured for us. The reason Jesus prays and achieves our unity is so that the world may know that the Father sent the Son. So the call is not to achieve unity and oneness. The call is to live into it. The call is to live into the reality of what's already been secured and achieved for us by Jesus. You can say it this way. The indicative here is that you are one with your fellow believers. You have already been unified with your fellow believers through the Holy Spirit applying the work of Jesus to you. That's the indicative. That's what's true of you. That's what's happened to you. Now the imperative in light of that is that now you live your life in that truth. In that reality that you are unified. And in doing so, that's how you manifest the name of God and his character to the world that we have been sent into. That's the point of the last part of this prayer here. Is that we would live now in light of the reality that's already been accomplished for us of being one. But we all know how broken and fractured the church is. And that Christians are and can be. We know how much we struggle to live in this unity. We have something that is meant to stand out to the world. And yet, we so often look just like the world. We are meant to live in such a way that stands out to the world. And yet, we so often live just like the world. Or look just like the world. The climate of division in all arenas of life are at a fever pitch right now in America. Right? I mean, across the board. And we buy into what the world and the culture is trying to sell us. We do this, and this happens when we seek to fill some kind of feeling that there's more work to be done on our behalf. That there's something that's not enough in what Jesus has done for us. That there's something that still needs to be done other than believing and trusting in the finished, achieved work of Jesus in the gospel. We get intoxicated with the narrative of our culture that says it's us versus them. That if they're on the other side of this issue, on the other side of this opinion, it is us versus them. It doesn't matter if they're Christian. It doesn't matter where they are in that realm. They're wrong if they're on the other side of this issue than I am. We buy into this scarcity mindset. The scarcity mindset that thinks that we, if we, if they win, then it means we have to lose, right? If they get their way, it means we're at a deficit. 
And that scarcity mindset is suffocating and it's unloving. But we get drunk on the sense of being right, of being superior, of watching video after video affirming everything that we believe and everything that's wrong on the other side. We think that we're better than those who hold opinions and values that are different to ours, even if they're Christian. And when we pursue this kind of way of life, this self-righteousness of seeking to justify ourselves and our beliefs, we will live in anxious, unhealthy disunity. There's a writer, uh, Freddie DeBoer, I believe is how you pronounce his last name, and he has this commentary on our culture. It's a little long, but I think it's worth quoting. He says, I've become increasingly preoccupied by a basic question. Why is everybody such a wreck? We have this vast intellectual architecture telling us that physical attractiveness hierarchies are cruel and gendered and unfair, which is true. But we still care about being hot. (laughs) And we judge each other about it. And our papers and humanity seminars are completely inadequate at ending that condition. We've got a political critique of the ways that, that notions of human worth are dictated by traditional inequalities of race and sex and class and a set of political concepts like self-care that are designed to fight the negative effects of that. We've got a self-help culture that constantly counsels that everyone is a ray of brilliant and unique light that alone can shine their way through a dark world. We've got an increasingly woke world of marketing and goods that sells its products by selling you to yourself. And he writes, A gym I passed by sometimes used to have a sign that said, Join the body acceptance movement. Neglecting the fact that if we all accepted our bodies, there would be no such thing as a gym. (laughs) We've got a medical industry busily developing all manner of powerful drugs to manage... All of this anxiety and insecurity and feelings of inadequacy. We've got our social media tools to craft and perfect and share an idealized vision of ourselves, curated and managed to the millimeter, so that we can present exactly what we want to present to put our best foot forward with digital precision. And none of it works, is what he writes. I've known people in my life who were the most outwardly secure and confident, who never betrayed a hint of doubt or guilt or remorse, who projected cool at all times, who were quite popular, who received plaudits and positive affirmation from others at all times, who were academically and professionally successful, who had money and respect, and yet the flow of life revealed that inside they hated themselves. None of that stuff mattered. None of it could get at the core self-hatred within. They could never fool themselves. And well, I wonder, is this the human condition? And the Bible says yes. (laughs) It is the human condition. That no matter what people project, that no matter the amount of accomplishments or money, it will never fully silence that feeling of not being enough. No matter how right on, on the side of history you are, it will never be enough. It will never feel like you've done enough. And it is in this understanding that we realize the thing that the world needs is the same thing that you and I need. 
when people are at the end of their life, they often say what they most want people to remember, what's most important to them, things like, I love you, I'm sorry, I forgive you, those, those relational, meaningful statements. And we have to remember in that light that Jesus is praying this prayer at the end of his life, knowing it's the end of his life, and he's praying this prayer out loud in a room with his disciples because he, it's what he wants them and he, what, what he wants us to know the most. And here's the thing, what he wants us to know the most is the only thing that will silence the self-doubt, the feeling of not enoughness that we have, and the shame that we have. And that kind of feelings, those ideas, that feeling of not enoughness will always lead to us living in disunity. What he wants us to know is the only thing that has the power to cause us to live in light of the unity that he has achieved and given to us. Rather than buy into the self-improvement competition strategies that the world is offering us, Jesus gives us what we need. And what is it here in our section? What does he give us towards the end of his life? Look at verse 23. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. What? Did you hear what he just said? That you love them even as you love me. That's not a typo. Jesus' words are so intentional. He just said that the Father loves Jesus and us the same. The Father loves us and Jesus the same. Oh, my water stopped. This is the most breathtakingly extravagant statement in the whole Bible. That Jesus would proclaim that the Father loves us the same way he loves his Son. And that's the one thing that we all need. The one thing we all long for. The one thing that has the power to truly unite us is the unchanging eternal love that the Father has for the Son is the same love with which he loves you. This is the most compelling evangelistic appeal that we have for ourselves and for those outside of the church. To know and experience this love, the same kind of love that he has for Jesus, when you know and experience it, it changes everything. When you believe it's true for you, it changes everything. To know and believe what verse 23 says is true totally transforms you. You no longer have to compare yourselves to others when you are secure in the Father's love for you. You no longer need to find your meaning and identity in some accomplishments of what you've done when you know that the Father loves you. You no longer are defined by your failures or you're not achieving what you thought your hopes and dreams were when you know the Father loves you. You no longer have to seek to justify yourself, to prove yourself, or work to earn acceptance when you know the Father loves loves and accepts you. 
You can receive criticism without being undone by it because you know the Father loves you. You can be okay when you are misunderstood, misrepresented, and labeled as something that is not true when you know the Father loves you. You can have joy in the midst of sadness. You can have hope in the midst of suffering. You are free from yourself, free to stop being strong, free to be weak. You are free to be honest about your sins and about your shortcomings when you know the Father loves you. This loving relationship we have with God is what life is all about. This is what, it is what we are created for, it is what our hearts long for, and because of that, you will never have rest and peace to live in light of the unity that's been achieved for you until you understand, believe, and know that the Father loves you with the same love that he loves Jesus. A quote that's often associated with G.K. Uh, Chesterton but was actually penned by the Scottish author Bruce Marshall goes like this. A young man who rings the bell at a brothel is unconsciously looking for God. There are many places we seek this kind of love and acceptance in our life. It's what drives us. But there's only one place to find it. There's only one place you can go to receive it. And it's in your relationship with God. It's in being secure in Jesus' finished, achieved work for you. In other words, we long for the love that the Trinity has right, within themselves, where we are loved for our own sake, not love because it benefits them, but love for our own sake, where that love can be fully expressed with full intimacy and vulnerability with no fear. Because as First John tells us, perfect love casts out fear, where the love is safe for us to rest in and will not go away. We long for a love that is mutual, love that leads one to be happy because the other person's happy or sad because the other one is going through sorrow. Love that we long for is love that never ends, where you never have to say goodbye. That's the love within the Trinity. And Jesus is saying, this is the love that we have and are loved with now by him this love is powerful enough to unite us but it's also the power that causes us to live out the unity that we have been given it's only this love that causes us to live in light of the unity been given when there are people who are on the other side of issues than us and even or especially when they're wrong right This is the only love that causes us to live in that unity because we start loving each other in light of the great love with which we are loved by God, our Father. And that's how we manifest the name and the character of God when we love each other in light of that love that we have in Him. So when we receive and believe this kind of love that's ours in Christ, 
That's the only thing that will cause us to live in light of the unity that we have. Not by trying to live in unity, not by trying to be one, not by trying to achieve something that's already been given to us, but by believing, by believing that we're unified by this one thing, the love of the Father that's given to us in Jesus, that he loves us like he loved him. And then by, in that reality, we reflect that love through how we love one another, even when we disagree, even when we are very different, even when the, someone's really difficult, even in the midst of knowing their sin and the dysfunction of the church and the people in it. Only the love of God would cause us to live in that unity, and that's how we manifest his name. That's how we manifest the character of God because it's only by believing and trusting his love for us that happens. This love for God, this love of God that we have, it never goes away. Nothing that you do can lessen its intensity. It is a covenantal forever love. And you may be saying to yourself, this can't be real. You don't know my sin You don't know how cold my heart is. You're saying, I want to believe it. But I don't know if it's true for me. Richard Sibbs, a theologian, writes this. Do not measure God's love and favor by your own feelings. The sun shines as clearly in the darkest day as it does on the brightest And he goes on to write, the difference is not in the sun, but in some clouds, which hinder the manifestation of the light thereof. What he is saying is that your feelings, your situation, the ups and downs in life may get in the way of you feeling and experiencing this love, but know it's always present. It's always there. That clouds may hinder you experiencing that reality Thank you. (laughs) But it's always there. The love of your Father is always brightly shining on you. So we are not to view God's love through our feelings and through our situations. We are to view our feelings and our situations through the constant of God's shining great love manifested in His Son. And as we grow in this conviction, as we grow in our belief of the gospel, we will live more in the reality of our unity that was already been achieved for us by our great Savior, Jesus. When we believe and grow in our conviction of God's love for us, only that will cause us to live in the truth of what's already been achieved and secured for us in Jesus So the call is not to become unified. That work has already been accomplished. The call is not to earn or secure God's love in your life. That work has already been accomplished in Christ. The call is simply to believe it this morning. Believe it. That if you don't feel it, that's not evidence that's not there. That's not the constant. Your feelings go up and down. 
The constant is God's bright, shining love on the cloudiest day as it is on the clearest day in your life. So the call is to believe it this morning. And the more you rest in his finished work for you, the more you will live as his beloved child. As his beloved child. And the more you live as a beloved child of God, the more you will live out your unity with other children of God. So my prayer for us here at Redeemer in light of this text is that as we are sent into Edmund, even this week, to be a body that he would fulfill this prayer, that we are a body that lives in the unified reality of the gospel that has secured us with one another, but that we would do so by glorying in the love that our great God loves us with this morning. Amen. Ugh.